Hello, Internet friend. I'm David Ravel, and this is ValueSide. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. Well, today, the decline and fall of U.S. Steel. Well, earlier this week, Nippon Steel of Japan announced that it would acquire U.S. Steel for $4.9 billion U.S. America had lost its last great, fully self-sufficient steel maker. Here's the story of how it all happened. Now, nearly 50 years ago, in the early 1970s, U.S. Steel Corporation was considered a fading blue chip, the kind of stock that one would recommend to a widow or orphan, to use that old expression. That is, a company with a viable track record and paid a handsome dividend. U.S. Steel met both of those criteria easily. The company was formed when J.P. Morgan merged three steel companies, Carnegie Steel, Federal Steel, and National Steel, to create the new U.S. Steel. Now, U.S. Steel had a good track record and a solid dividend, just the sort of investment for someone who did not want to trade the market, but was happy to clip their dividends. No one looked at U.S. Steel as a growth opportunity. Instead, it was like a utility stock, a solid income producer with little potential upside. It was all part of the corporate culture at U.S. Steel, solid but stayed. For much of the 20th century, U.S. Steel was a vital cog in the industrial output of the United States. After all, it was the steel from their mills that built the skyscrapers in New York, that was part of every automobile produced in Detroit, and most critically, that made up the war machine that won World War II. U.S. Steel was a top supplier throughout that war, producing 35 million tons of steel at its peak and employing 34,000 workers. Without the American steel industry, of which U.S. Steel was number one, it is unlikely that America would have prevailed in that war. Now this week, as the news broke on Wall Street that U.S. Steel was no more and was greeted with a ho-hum, just another chapter in America's fading past was closing. What most of the analysts missed was that this was the last great integrated steel company in the United States. Now, an integrated steel company mines, transports, and produces all the facets of the steelmaking process. They're entirely independent. The integrated steel company can be relied upon to make good during good times and bad. They're not reliant upon external suppliers. It's why integrated production is so important during times of war and stress. Today, most of our steel is made by recycling companies that take scrap metal and refine it into steel. What is most intriguing about U.S. Steel is how closely its business plan matches many of the most significant American companies today. These three fundamentals are how U.S. Steel was capitalized, how it promoted innovation in their production process, and how U.S. Steel dealt with environmental issues. First, their capitalization. Now, J.P. Morgan was the most influential banker of the earliest 20th century. A true Wall Street legend, the man was named atop the country's largest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. But a steel entrepreneur? Hardly. Indeed, Morgan was a money guy, one of the best financers ever. 
What he saw in assembling the U.S. Steel Corporation was less a company to produce an essential product than a financial deal. He knew that he could organize a transaction so that all the principals, the founders of those steel companies, could receive a fair price and he could make a good profit for himself. Morgan never took the position of president of U.S. Steel. Instead, he immediately turned that role over to an experienced steel executive, Charles M. Schwab. Like today's financiers, Morgan wanted to close the transaction and let someone else run the plant. Like most financiers, Morgan recognized that the best price he could achieve would be through leverage. By borrowing much of the purchase price, there would be fewer shareholders to share in the profits. It was all good news for Morgan, but it saddled the remaining company with excessive debt. Debt that would be need to service. Debt that would need to be serviced. Need to have the principal and interest paid monthly before management could plow any earnings back into the business. We see this same type of corporate financing today, often called the leveraged buyout. But almost without exception, this kind of financing leaves a staid, conservative corporation more concerned about meeting its ongoing financing charges than with innovative production. And staid and conservative perfectly describes U.S. Steel during most of the half-century that I've followed it. Today, the oldest steel mills in the world are owned by U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel was one of the last American corporations to upgrade their operating software when they began the process in 2010. Additionally, U.S. Steel has been late in embracing the electric arc furnace, a cleaner, more efficient method to produce steel. The new electric arc furnaces are estimated to operate at 80 to 90% lower in cost than the traditional coke-fed furnace at U.S. Steel. Nucor Steel, which is scheduled to become America's number one producer using the new electric arc furnaces after U.S. Steel leaves the scene. Politics and Environment Many of the leaders of U.S. Steel have had a political tin ear. During one particular rancorous labor dispute, one U.S. Steel executive so alienated President Truman that Truman threatened to nationalize the company. But perhaps the most vivid example happened in 1963. That year, President Kennedy was trying to desegregate the University of Alabama. Naturally, Kennedy appealed to the largest employer in town, U.S. Steel, to ask for their help. Responding, the U.S. Steel president told the press he would be, quote, offended at such a request. Months later, when U.S. Steel needed a much-needed price hike, they found President Kennedy taking to the television demanding that they roll back such an inflationary hike, which U.S. Steel subsequently had to do. Politicians, you see, have long memories. However, it is in dealing with environmental issues that U.S. Steel has had the most problems. Steelmaking can be a dirty business, and that's especially true when you have some of the oldest mills around. The low point in Big Steel's environmental record came in 1948. For three days, a smothering smog blanketed the small village of Donora, Pennsylvania. Twenty people died immediately 
including the father of Baseball Hall of Fame outfielder Stan Musial. Over the next several weeks, 50 more residents would succumb to the deadly fumes, making a total of 70 Donora residents who would die from U.S. steel pollution. But like much of Steele's public relations, it took years for all of these facts to become public. Now, as recently as a decade ago, the Environmental Protection Agency counted U.S. Steel as the number two polluter in the country. Currently, U.S. Steel and the EPA are locked in a Supreme Court battle over a proposed new ozone regulations scheduled to go into effect in 2026. U.S. Steel has spent over a million dollars in legal fees fighting these new regulations. Is there any doubt that steel plants do not meet these new standards? Now, for 122 years, U.S. Steel has been behind the curve, late to innovate, politically inept, holding on to a plant and equipment long after it has become outmoded. It's hard to build a business case for a company that in a half a century has gone from producing two-thirds of the nation's steel to just 8% today. U.S. Steel has become a business dinosaur. But there's another perspective from which to view U.S. Steel, America's strategic interests. Remember, U.S. Steel is the country's last integrated steel producer. Two headline events have recently shown us how vital integrated production is. First was a supply chain dispute immediately following the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a time when American manufacturers and suppliers could not obtain the products and components they needed. You see, many of our industries have shipped their production offshore. Electronics, computers, pharmaceuticals, and many more are no longer made within the United States. And with this departure, U.S. Steel becomes yet another on that list. Now, the second major wake-up has been the Ukraine war. The United States had taken a leadership role in providing Ukraine with weapons and munitions they need to fight. However, Ukraine's demand for additional supplies have recently been outstripped by our ability to meet their requirements. By one estimate, Ukraine fires off in two days the equivalent numbers of artillery shells that we can produce in a month. We ran out of the most common high-accuracy 155mm shells a couple of months ago, and we will no longer supply Ukraine with any. It points to a potentially catastrophic inability to provide our own troops should we be in such a conflict. Even in an industry as significant as steel, the loss of an aging producer would not ordinarily be especially noteworthy. Few will mourn the closing of a few rusty factories. I'm assuming the new buyer, Nippon Steel, will ship much of their production back to their Japanese production facilities. But what is incomprehensible is the loss of our last integrated steelmaker at a time when the world is as unstable as it is now. And that's the value side. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own.